Good morning. Are you guys doing well? Amen. It is good to be blessed. Uh, it's a long story when we think about the life of David. Before we get to that long story today, I have a treat for you. Uh, our dear, dear friends and favorite missionaries are here with us today. Bo and Mim are here from Kenya. So I'm going to ask them to come on up. I told them I would give them a minute to say hello to you guys this morning and just uh, say hi and make a little connection. It is so good to see you guys. It is so good to have you in a worship service with us. Yeah. So how's it going? It's really good to be here. Good. Good. This is working. Yeah, I know. Even better. Yeah, even better. The first service, we couldn't make that work, so that's good. Tell us about how things are going and just kind of say hello, because we'll get a chance to hear more later, but I'd like to just have you guys have a chance to say hi. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Um, We're super, super, super excited to be here. Um, As you may know, this is a gift. This was not our plan. We did not plan to come back after six months, Um, so we're incredibly grateful to be here. Um, but we're also incredibly grateful for your prayers. Um, you guys have just really outdone yourselves in praying for us, supporting us, loving us, and we are super grateful. Yes, we've had a really, really kind of easy transition into life there, and I know it's because of all the prayers that have gone up from this fellowship here, and uh, just thank you for enabling us to be an extension of Grace Fellowship. Uh, in Kenya. We really appreciate you guys. Yeah. So some of you are looking at them and you're like, I've never seen these people before. I don't know who these people are. Bo and Mim have been a part of our church family for many, many, many years. And about six months ago, they went to full-time mission service in Kenya. And so uh, if you haven't met them, I want to encourage you to say hi to them, introduce yourself. But here's the thing. We would love to hear a ton of stuff about what's been going on for six months, what your needs are, how we can pray for you. We'd like some time to pray over you and just ask questions and hear stories. So what we decided is uh, we are going to uh, have a gathering this Wednesday night right here at Grace Fellowship. It's going to be an informal gathering. Anybody who wants to come, come. You'll get a chance to hear about their ministry in Kenya, what God is doing there, how he's been sustaining them. You'll be able to ask them questions. They'll be able to uh, share about what the needs are there and what's going on and give God the glory. And we'll have a chance to just pray over them because you guys are going to be here how long? Through the end of December. Yeah. So they'll be heading back in just a couple of weeks. So we get this little bit of a chance to spend some time with them. So if there's any way you can open up your schedule on Wednesday night, 630 in this room, please do be here. It will be a very, very special time and uh, we're looking forward to it. So uh, with that, you guys get out of the way. I got stuff to do here. Thanks for coming. So this long story about David's life has been something we have been sort of visiting uh, and bouncing our way through, right? Um, and, and I keep mentioning this. You have, you have the book of Samuel, which is really divided in our Bibles into two books, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And those uh, books really tell us the story of Samuel, Saul, and David. And uh, we have just been sort of zoning in on the life of David, but David's life alone 
is so involved. There are so many ups and downs. It's like riding a roller coaster when you go into David's life. And uh, we haven't had a chance to visit all of the things that have been happening and all that. I've been just sort of hurrying to catch you up. But in the couple of months that we've been looking at David's life, we've seen a shepherd boy turn into a national hero overnight like that, right? We saw a palace musician um, become somebody who was a fugitive who was running for his life. We saw David become a leader of men in the wilderness as he was running from uh, Saul, and there were many others that were running from Saul, and they kind of banded together. We saw the choices that he made when he had opportunities to kill Saul and chose not to. We saw what he did with the Ark of the Covenant and how important it was for him to get God back into the center of the life of Israel and the issues that they dealt with with the Ark. And we've just been sort of bouncing through this whole thing. Um, and, And we finally get to this place now where finally... Everything has fallen into place for David. Everything is going great. He now has his dream job. He's the king. This is the job that God told him he had for him. And he's been waiting and waiting and waiting for this. And he's had to dodge a whole bunch of bullets or literally spears in the way to that process, right? And now he's become the king. Uh, He now has power. He now has wealth. He now has the adoration of the people. There are no threats to his throne. There is nobody competing with him for this. From time to time, he has a challenging moment. From time to time, there's a skirmish with the Philistines, and they have to go and deal with that. Um, But he has a well-trained army for that. He has the, the men that are called David's mighty men who are leading the soldiers into battle, and and there's generally peace. Um, There are some of these little skirmishes, and from time to time, they lose someone. Just recently, we saw, sadly, they lost one of their soldiers, Uriah, tragically died in the heat of battle. And yet, uh, everything seems to be going very, very well for David, because they won the battle, and everything's great, and sometimes there's just casualties in war, and you have to deal with that. Just to make things better for David, the word got out that when his friend Uriah was tragically killed in battle, David kindly and lovingly came alongside and took Uriah's wife to be his own because after all, she was pregnant. Someone needs to take care of her. Someone needs to raise this child. And everybody is just singing his praises. What a wonderful guy David is. It's like a Disney movie. Everybody lives happily ever after in the end. But you and I know there's more to the story, right? We know what the people in the story do not know, at least most of them. We know that David actually raped Uriah's wife. We know that David actually conspired to have Uriah murdered. We know that David tried to cover the whole thing up about 10 different ways and finally ended up having to marry this woman as a part of the cover-up. And months have passed without anybody finding out. Nobody knows. And so David is cruising. Everything is going just fine. In fact, if you didn't know better, you might say that things have never been better for David. He is living his best life now, as they say. Still some random moments of darkness. Undoubtedly, some nightmares from the reminder of what he's been hiding. No no doubt some 
waves of guilty feelings that he has to sort of push aside because after all, he's got stuff to do. But basically, it looks like he got away with this whole ugly thing. But as we saw last week after reading the whole story in uh, 2 Samuel 11, after David sins terribly and covers it up, it looks like everything is just fine. But there is this pesky verse at the end of chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. And you're going to need your Bibles. Turn to 2 Samuel 11. We're going to be in chapter 12 for the most part today. But, uh, but the last sentence of 2 Samuel 11 is the only problem David's dealing with. Here's what it says. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. So this facade that David has so carefully constructed around his life so that he looks like a man that he really is not, that facade is coming crashing down all around him at this point because God was about to send a messenger to David. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 12 and verse 1. So 2 Samuel chapter 12, again, like last week, I'm going to read you a large chunk. We're going to get the whole picture, and then we're going to take off from there. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathanael to David. Now, if you don't, or Nathan, not Nathanael. Since the Lord sent Nathan to David, if you don't know who Nathan is, Nathan is now the prophet over Israel. There are other prophets in Israel, but Nathan is the, the main prophet that God is using since the passing of Samuel. And so God speaks to Nathan and sends him to David. And he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, and when, uh, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely this man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore, the, word shall, uh, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight." 
Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. David's life is about to take a radical left turn. Everything is going smoothly. He has managed to keep everything under control and everybody thinks he's the man and everybody looks up to him and he's enjoying the wealth and the power and the comfort and the ease of the palace and he thinks the whole thing is covered up and behind him and, and nobody knows what's happened. But his life's about to take a terrible turn. This child that will be born to Bathsheba will die in infancy. David's loved ones will become his enemies. His own sons will rise up against him and in a military coup will try to take the throne from their own father. Eventually, his wives will be captured and taken by his enemies and made sport of in the public square before everyone's eyes. And his happy, easy, comfortable, kickback life is about to fall apart before him. In other words, that little indiscretion of David, that time that he gave in to temptation and tried to cover his tracks, is going to come back to haunt him forever. It says the sword will never depart from his house. There's going to be violence Generation after generation after generation. How is David ever going to recover from this? He might as well throw in the towel because after all, there is no coming back from something like this. But here's the thing. Coming back is not what David needed to do anyway. He didn't need to recover and get back to being the kind of man he had been. He needed to be a different kind of man, amen? The, the problem was not just that David had done some stuff that he shouldn't do. The problem was that David had become the kind of man who would do those things. So he didn't just need to get restored. He didn't just need to recover what had happened. He didn't just need to get back to being the kind of man he was. He needed to leave that man behind and become an entirely new man altogether. And that seems impossible. David is the ultimate Humpty Dumpty. He has fallen off the wall. He is in a million pieces. And all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put David back together again. But there is one who can, the king himself. And when I say the king himself, I'm not talking about King David. I'm talking about the king of kings and lord of lords. I'm talking about God. Remember, Saul sinned too. On a couple of occasions, he did things his own way, ignored God, and God sent a prophet to him too, right? And how did he respond? He responded with finger pointing. He responded with blame shifting. He made excuses. He, he denied things. And God responded to that by taking his spirit from Saul. And God responded to that 
by, by ripping the kingdom from Saul's hands. And Saul's life ends tragically on the battlefield, and he is as far from God as he could possibly be when that happens. That's how Saul responded. But how did David respond when the same thing happens? His own failures lead to a place where God sends a prophet to him and confronts him directly about his sin. How did he respond to that? You can read all the details of this as you continue on in chapter 12. By the way, as I said, we're not taking this verse by verse, and that kills me because I love the Word of God so much. And I just love to take my time and just go verse by verse and cover everything. But we would be here till past the rapture if that happens. So I've decided to just do it this way. But I am trusting that you own a Bible. I'm trusting that you have some opportunity in your week where you can open up and read the rest of chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. You can read chapter 13, chapter 14, see what happens. I strongly encourage you to do that. But for today's sake, let me summarize. David responds to Nathan's confrontation by falling on his face before God and crying out for mercy. That's what he does. Uh, He goes into a prayer closet for fasting and prayer. And he will not come out and he will not let anybody in. And he stays in there for a long time. And we would have no idea what he prayed in that prayer closet if it wasn't for the fact that he wrote down his prayer and it's published in your Bible. We get the prayer. We get to find out what he prayed when he was in that closet. Um, and, And by the way, just a little side note, I recommend this. It's a great thing to, from time to time, if not all the time, journal your prayers. Write down the things that you're asking God for, because it's an amazing thing to be able to go back later and reread and go, wow, God answered that, and I didn't even notice. I forgot I was asking for this, but God gave it to me anyway. God is so faithful. We see the faithfulness of God. Well, it was a habit of David to write his prayers David was a songwriter, he was a poet, and so he wrote these psalms, and in the psalms we have so many of David's wonderful prayers that we can learn from, and one of them is in Psalm 51. So you can close the book on 2 Samuel, turn to the book of Psalms, and we're going to spend the rest of our time in Psalm 51, because here's what we know about Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a recording of the prayer that David prayed after Nathan confronted him about Bathsheba and Uriah. It says he went into that prayer closet and he prayed this prayer, Psalm 51. And we're going to pick it up in Psalm 51, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Let's stop there for a second, because I want you to notice what's missing. Already in this prayer, there is something blatantly missing from David's prayer. You know what it is? Excuses, denials, finger pointing, blame shifting, all of that stuff that Saul did, David doesn't do. 
David instead dives right in, falls on his face before God, cries out for God's grace. Don't miss that. He says, be gracious to me, O God. And at first I read that and I think, wow, that's kind of a selfish thing. Why don't you start talking about your sin instead of asking for God's grace? When he asks for God's grace, he is admitting he doesn't deserve God's favor. Grace, by definition, is favor that you do not deserve. It is favor when you deserve punishment. He's saying, I know I deserve punishment, but I'm asking you for grace. He is, he is humbled before God. He's on his face before God, and there is not a single um, uh, excuse in this prayer. He takes complete responsibility for his sin. Listen, it is not Bathsheba's fault for not closing the bathroom curtains. And David doesn't say it is. It is not Uriah's fault for refusing the comforts of the bed of his wife when he came home. And David doesn't say it is. It is not Nathan's fault for confronting David and upsetting the apple cart when it seemed like everything was going well. And David doesn't say it is. It's not, um, it's not God's fault for allowing all this stuff to happen in the first place. And David doesn't say it is. Here's the bottom line. David's sin is David's fault, period. And he doesn't pretend otherwise. His sin is his fault. And that's very easy for us, 3,000 years later, reading this story in a book, for us to go, man, that David really messed up. This is his fault. That's easy for us. How easy is it, though, when you look in the mirror and it's not about David, it's about you? Because God's word tells us not only is David's sin David's fault, but your sin is your fault. <laughs> my sin is my fault. And there is such a temptation for us to both cover up our sins so no one would know and convince ourselves that it's not really so bad because after all, you know, uh, I'm just human and if he hadn't said this and she hadn't done that and if that idiot hadn't done this, I would be fine. Listen, your sin is your sin. And by the way, it's pretty rare nowadays to go into a church on a Sunday morning and have a preacher even use the word sin. We, we don't like hearing about it. I don't like talking about it. You know what I want to preach on every Sunday? I want to preach on how God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and He wants you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous, and if you'll just tithe more to Grace Fellowship, you will have no problems. That's what I want to preach on. And that sounds funny, but you know there's a whole bunch of preachers preaching on that this morning, right? I hope they're saying tithe to Grace Fellowship, but I think they might not be. That would be easy to preach on that, but you guys, here's the thing. The gospel is not the gospel unless my sin is my sin. I actually don't need a savior unless I'm a sinner. I don't need to be reborn unless I'm dead. I don't need to be fixed unless I'm broken. And so we can't skip this part. The truth of the matter is David's sin was David's sin. Your sin is your sin, and my sin is my sin. And if we will not own that, we will never make progress in transformation. David is broken before God. He is humbled. He's ashamed. He's aware of his own responsibility in all of this. And my friends, this is the first step in confession and repentance that leads to healing a new life. 
you can't skip this step. There is no pathway to peace and a restored relationship to God that does not begin with genuine, honest, full-blown confession and the taking of responsibility for our sins. And we live in a culture where we're taught just the opposite. We're taught nothing is my fault. Well, after all, it's the way I was raised. Or I was born with this, uh, this uh, challenge. Or, or you know, um, if I had had it as easy as you had it, I would do as well as you do. We love to put labels on our sin and call it a disorder and call it a syndrome and call it somebody else's fault. But until I own my sin, I'm never going to get right with God. He requires it of me. There's no pathway to peace apart from it. And some of us are still stuck like Saul because we try to convince ourselves and others that our sin is really not our fault. And when you're caught up in sin... You can take that path if you want, but I'm here to tell you there is no healing along that path, and I want us to experience healing. So David owns his responsibility. He blames nobody but himself, and he goes further. He doesn't just talk about the fact that he committed a sin. He talks about the fact that he's a sinner to his core. Look at verse 4 again. Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, you only I have sinned. We'll come back to that in a second. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. God, when you judge me and you condemn me, if you're to squash me like a bug and send me to hell forever, you'd be right in doing it. I would have no argument because you have told me that the wages of sin is death. And I have chosen to rebel against you. And God has every right as a holy God to judge sinners. Make no mistake about it. And David makes no mistake about it. He says, you're blameless if you judge me. I can't make an argument that says it wouldn't be right for you to punish me for my sin. In fact, it would be absolutely just for you to punish me for my sin. But I'm asking you, God, to be gracious to me. It's kind of strange at first glance, verse 4. Because he says, against you and you only I have sinned. And I would have no problem with that statement if it just said, against you I have sinned. But it says, against you and you only I have sinned. There's an emphasis that it's only God that he has sinned against. And I got to scratch my head when I see that because I want to say, how about Bathsheba? Go ahead, tell her that you've only sinned against God. How about Uriah? He's dead Go ahead and tell him that you only sinned against God. Uh, How about Joab, the general, who had a choice between following the king's orders or doing what's right and sparing his own neck and was complicit then in murder? Did you sin against Joab? And what about the people who trusted you as their king? Did you sin against them by being um, unfaithful to to your vow? Certainly you must owe somebody an apology here, right? Yes, that's true. He owes all those people an apology, and probably more. They were hurt by his sin, but he only sinned against God. Sin, by definition, is rebellion against God. Why should we not commit adultery? Because God said so. Who made the decree you shall not murder? 
God did. When we break God's standards and rebel against God, our sin, by definition, is against God, and the results of our sin often spill over onto all kinds of people, and you very well need to make some serious apologies because of your sin and how it's affected other people, but you didn't sin against them, you sinned against God. You, you might have to actually make reparations for the sin that you committed and how it impacted people. But you didn't sin against them. You sinned against God. You might need to go to prison for the sins that you committed and how it impacted people. But your sin is against God. And if we skip God and we just want to make it about trying to make it right and apologize and shake hands and make up, then we miss the forgiveness and the rebirth that we need from the only one who can give it to us. So David is right when he says, I've sinned against you and you only. Sometimes our sin hurts others, but sin is sin because it disobeys and dishonors a holy God. And guys, today, it's very easy for us to lose sight of the fact that our God is a holy God. It's very easy for us to lose sight of the fact that He is perfect, that He is worthy of all our lives. We love the fact that because of God's grace, He will be our best friend. Jesus is my homeboy. Have you seen the t-shirt? We love that, that that I can just hang out with Jesus. I could talk to him about anything. I could be friends with Jesus. He's my brother. I love all of that, and I would never say that's not true. But in the midst of noticing that, have we lost sight of the fact that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords? Have we lost sight of the fact that is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the creator of all things, the one with whom we have to do? It is easy for us to lose sight of the fact that when we sin, we sin against a holy God. Sin is sin because it dishonors a holy God. So true repentance has to start with God. So David admits to his sin. And then he admits that it's not just a single occurrence, but he is a sinner to the depth of his being. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He says, it's not just that I sinned, it's that I'm a sinner. It's not just that I broke something, it's that I'm broken. I have always been a sinner. I was a sinner in my mother's womb. I came out sinning, and I've been sinning ever since because I'm a sinner, David says. I've been broken. I have no uh, excuse. I am faulty in my heart. David sinned because he's a sinner. He's conceived in sin. He's born in sin. There has never been a moment of true holiness in his life, and he doesn't pretend there is. This, by the way, is what theologians call total depravity, the doctrine of total depravity, which gets people a little confused because they're like, well, no, I do some good things. No one's arguing whether you do some good things. All of us do some good things, if the word good is relative, right? But, but um, what total depravity is, is it's the biblical truth that says every fiber of my being is contaminated by sin. That's how lost I am. I am so broken that there is no part of my life that is pure. I am characterized by sin apart from Christ. So it doesn't mean we never do anything of value or goodness. It means that every aspect of our being is stained by sin. And therefore, nothing we do is holy. 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it says in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many have sinned? All. All. So that's you and me. So let's just agree to that and let's put that away. David is completely broken before God. He makes no excuses. He offers no bargains. He, he doesn't blame God for any of it. He never implies that God is wrong for punishing or judging him. And then he just throws himself at God's mercy. He takes the same posture before God as Mephibosheth took before him. We saw that uh, two or three weeks ago, right? And he, and he just comes in and falls flat on his face before God. And he begs for mercy. Look at verse 7. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. By the way, guys, are you picking up on this? How many times he talks about me, my, I? And he's talking about his sin. Go back to to verse 1, he says, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know, verse 3, my transgression, my sin is ever before me and I have sinned. And it goes on. And finally, again, he says, blot out all my transgressions. Blot out all my iniquities. God, I will never be clean unless you clean me with supernatural Holy Spirit cleaning fluid. It's called the blood of Christ. There's no other way to be made clean. So there's no excuses. There's no bargains. He just falls on his face before God. God, you're my only hope. God, I can't purify myself. Only you can do that for me. If you don't cleanse me, I will never be clean. If you don't heal me, I will forever be broken. And by the way, this is so different from what people are often asked to do today when they're offered the opportunity to be made right with God. Because, because listen, as a preacher, as an evangelist, you know what I want to do? It doesn't matter if I'm standing in a group of three people on a street corner telling them about Jesus, or if I'm standing in a stadium filled with 100,000 people listening to me preach. If I'm going to preach the gospel, you know what I want to see happen? I want to see people come to know Christ. Amen? So, so here's the temptation. I think I have to do it. And so what I need to do is just not use the S word, sin, too much. Not talk about brokenness. And what I have to do instead is talk about this free gift that Jesus offers. Wouldn't you like to go to heaven? It's so, <laughs> it's so fun talking to little kids about the gospel. You know, I, I used to, we used to have this uh, preschool and kindergarten in the church way back when, and I would do these preschool chapels. Man, you talk about heaven and hell and the love of God and the plan he has for your life, and you get to spend eternity in heaven and see grandma and grandpa, and there's like candy and cotton candy and all kinds of great stuff and unicorns, and wouldn't you love to go to heaven? Now, boys and girls, bow your heads, and I want you to raise your hand if you want to accept Jesus. Boom! Every hand goes up. Listen, you want to go to heaven or you want to go to hell? I'll take heaven. Okay, great. And, and, and it's tempting as a preacher to present it that way and leave out the fact that God calls us to lay our lives down before him, to admit that our sin and to transfer the ownership paper of our lives to God, that he would be Lord of our lives and not just Savior. And so... 
David is grappling with this challenge right now, and he's going, I have stepped aside and not followed you as my Lord, and that needs to change. And so he throws himself at the mercy of God. David holds nothing back. He confesses completely. He repents entirely. He begs God for mercy and grace. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. My heart needs to be replaced. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. My spirit is poisoned. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. David had seen what happened when God took his spirit away from Saul and the tragic, terrible results of that. He knew that he deserved no less punishment than Saul deserved. David didn't need to be restored. David did not need to be remodeled. David did not need to be remade. David needed to be reborn. And, and guys, you and I, we don't need God to just polish us up a little bit. We need to be made new in Christ. And there's only one way that can happen. It's by His grace and by His blood. Chapter uh, 12, verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David puts his complete hope in God here. Maybe... By his grace, I could still honor God again. Maybe this isn't the end of the road for me. Maybe my life can still praise the one who made me. If God will show mercy, I will live for his glory. What else can you do when he's shown you such mercy? I I will sing his praises forevermore. Other people will see what God has done for me and they will be drawn to praise him. That's what my life could be about, but I desperately need God's forgiveness. I desperately need his mercy. I have nothing to offer him but my brokenness, David says. Have you ever been there? I, I, I don't see a way out of this, God. I, I've messed this up so badly that I have no idea how to fix it. I don't have the power to fix it. The tunnel I'm in is so long and so dark, I cannot see any light at the end, and I have no idea how to fix any of this. God, I am just simply broken. Guess what? Our brokenness is like soft clay in the hands of the master potter. It's what he uses to make something beautiful. It's what he uses to make something useful. He makes all things new, the scripture says, and he alone can make us new as well. Brokenness is the truest pathway to success. We may try to pretend we don't need God 
We may philosophize our way past God. We may try to fool our friends into thinking we're doing just fine, but we aren't fooling anyone, least of all God. Saul went to the grave far from God. And his story is a horrible tragedy. But David is known to this day as the man after God's own heart. What's the difference? Is, is Saul a greater sinner than David? Not by my estimation. Is David a better man than Saul? Not in any way that I can see. The difference between a person who dies far from God and a person after God's own heart is how they respond to God's grace after they've blown it. That's the difference. So allow me to get personal. And as they say, to go from preaching to meddling. I I want you to actually look in a mirror here from God's word. I, I want us all to actually stop with all the posturing and take off the masks and, and, and stop with all the pretense. And, and can we just admit to God that we too are in desperate need for God's grace and forgiveness? Because listen, I, I know that many of you in here, most of you in here, are, are actually followers of Jesus. That most people listening to this message today already have a personal saving relationship with Christ. And I understand that. But can we also understand that like David, you can enter into a relationship with God and still go off track? And that when you get off track, you still need his forgiveness. Uh, The New Testament says to Christians that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the cleansing is not just a one-time thing. The grace of God needs to be poured onto my life every moment of every day. And can we take it a little further and say, not just poured onto my life, but poured through my life to the lives of others? Because we love grace for us, don't we? (laughs) Sometimes for others, we're not so happy. Guys, we need God's forgiveness Not once, not now and then, but every moment of every day. There's no excuse for my sin. And there's no excuse for yours. Let's all just admit that we're guilty before holy God. But that's the bad news. I have good news. God sent his son to pay the price. If you are a Christian, if you have a personal relationship with God already because you have turned the ownership of your life over to Christ and he is your king and your Lord and you walk in fellowship with him, you are still going to mess up from time to time. Anybody got an amen for that one? Okay, so we still mess up from time to time, even though we have the Holy Spirit, even though we have the Word of God, even though we have the church around us as a support system, we still mess up from time to time, and we still need God's amazing grace. And if you've never come into a personal relationship with Christ, if you have never, maybe you've heard about God, maybe you thought about God, maybe you flirted with God a little bit, but you've never actually given up the control of your own life and handed it to him, if you've never invited him into your life as the ruler and king, as the one who not only forgives and cleanses and makes new, but as the one who carries you through the rest of your life, if you haven't done that, let me just say to you, today is the day. Today is the first day of the rest of your eternity, my friend. 
because God has a plan for your life and he's not finished with you yet. I don't care how many walls you've run into. I don't care how deep the tunnel is ahead of you. Our God is able to do beyond what you could ever imagine and he loves you just enough to do it. That's why he sent his son. He sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so, yeah, I've been a a little abrupt today. I've been a little harsh. I've been a little direct. I've talked to you about your sin and how there's no excuse for your sin. And guys, I'm trying to do us all a favor here because we can continue walking around in la-la land pretending like we don't have a problem with sin or we can actually admit our sin, fall on our face before God and let him lift us up and give us new life. That's what he calls us to. What an incredible blessing. How do you respond to a God like that? What will you do with an opportunity like that? How do you respond to amazing grace? The question is not whether you're a sinner. You are. The question is not whether you sin. You do. The gavel has already fallen. That argument is already over. But the righteous judge gives you an opportunity to be set free because Jesus already paid the price. And and I want to remind those of you who are Christians who sometimes just get knocked down because of your own choices to sin and you lose hope and, and you think, well, surely God is done with me now. Surely God must have given up on me now. Let's remember, God is outside of time that when he sent Jesus to the cross, he knew about the sins you're going to commit tomorrow. He, he already paid the price for your sins yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's not surprised. He's not shocked. He's not going to ever love you less than he loves you now. And by the way, it would be impossible for him to love you more than he loves you now. Nothing changes in God. He is not going to change his love for you. The question is, will you get off your high horse, get on your knees, lift up your hands and say, God, I need you to carry me. He offers you a command to turn from your sin, throw yourself at his mercy, And he's already made a way to pour out that mercy upon you. He sees your brokenness. He knows about your guilt. He took your punishment and he offers you grace. You may look at David and say, boy, I'm not as big a sinner as he is. And God would say, I beg to differ. You you may look at David and say, well, you know, how how could God ever forgive someone who has given so much and he just throws it away? God says, that's what I do. I love people so much that I send my son to pay the price. And so it's up to us to just go, how am I going to respond? And for some of us, maybe today you need to respond for the first time by letting go and letting God take over. Maybe you need to invite Jesus into your life. Submit your life to his lordship and let him be the king of your life. Maybe that needs to happen today. For many of us, though, what needs to happen 
is that we take that little corner of our lives that we keep hiding from everybody else and hoping that God doesn't notice. Maybe there's an area, a, a relationship, a, a habit, um, uh, an area of sin that we keep falling into, thought patterns, bitterness, anger, unforgiveness. Maybe there's some stuff that we hold on to and we go, God, I'm not going to let you have this too. And God says, really? Because my grace is dependent upon your surrender. Isn't it time for you to surrender every corner of your life to God? It's not something we just do once. It's something we do continually. We walk in that grace. We walk in that forgiveness. We walk in that confession. So let's bow our heads and we'll close here. And I want us to have a moment just of quiet reflection because maybe God needs to talk to you about one of these things. And if today you would have to admit, yeah, I really never have invited Christ to be my Lord. I've never really given up the control of my life to him. Today's the day to do it. You do what David did. You admit that you're a sinner. You ask for his grace. You confess your belief that Jesus died to pay the price for your sin. And you submit your life to him. It's something that's between you and him. You don't need to jump through hoops. You don't need to stand up on a stage. You don't need to make an uh, announcement. You just need to give your life to Christ and let him take it from there. But for many of you today, you need to give something to him. You need to let go of something. Now, I don't know what it is, but may the Lord make it clear to you what it is. And you just need to talk to God about it. So Lord, we come to you now as broken vessels. We come to you now as those who are dependent upon your grace. We come to you as those who have no excuses and have often been guilty of making excuses. And with no more pretense, no more excuses, we fall at your feet. We praise your holy name. We plead for your grace. We need your mercy. And we accept your offer of new life. Make us new, God. Make us new, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Listen, one last thing before I let you go, and that is... Sometimes when we have a message like this where we have to dig into God's Word and we're seeing the stuff that is hard to hear about, like our sin and stuff like that, sometimes uh, the Lord really moves in our hearts and maybe you just had a time of prayer with God that was a time of you transferring the ownership of your life to Him. You need to let somebody know that. Um, or, or, or maybe you just need some support. Maybe you need some counsel. Maybe you need a friend, some encouragement, whatever. Uh, if, if God's doing business with your heart, don't resist it and bring somebody into the loop with you. It's an amazing thing for us to walk together toward Christ. It's very difficult to do alone. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.